The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Psalm 73, and Asha was going to come up and preach from it in a minute, but I'm going to read it for us first, and it's a little bit longer, um, but just stick with me. It's a very powerful one. So Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in hearts. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts, comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it oppressed me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... 
it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. I'm so happy to be able to share the teaching this morning. Now, here's the big question. Does my Bible, whoo, thank you, Lord, for the thin line. Um, it's okay. We'll make this work. There we go. We'll make this work. Okay. You guys doing well this morning? This is that, that kind of that fall season where it's beautiful outside, and then Sundays we know, we, we know to kind of dress warm, right? Once you fire on that furnace for the winter, it's, it's on all, <laughs> all season. So we, we try to, uh, yeah, hold it back as, as long as we, uh, we can. So we're in the series on the Psalms, right? And we've, we're talking about particularly emotion in the Psalms. And, and we've said that the Psalms talk about every season of the heart and, and that there's a different Psalm for wherever you're at. And these Psalms, they're, they're both private prayers, but then also public expressions. This is the heavy duty one. Nice. There we go. And so you have in the Psalms like a worship leader, right, who is expressing the heart of the people to God. Maybe it's grief or maybe it's celebration and joy. And then at other times you have the, the psalmist bringing his burdens to God, right, and, and his feelings and emotions. And then he's inviting the people of God to pray those prayers with him. In both cases, there is a listening to the prayers of someone else and, a, and us joining in and harmonizing with them in our song to God. So these are both corporate and personal, right? They, on, they invite us to be honest about where we're at, how we're feeling, and they invite us to listen carefully to where other people are at and how they're feeling. And you know what? Often we're in different places, right? And so it, they, the Psalms teach us empathy. They teach us to listen. Sometimes we're led in a lament when we're actually pretty glad and happy. And sometimes we're invited, right? We come to church and we sing a worship song about joy and celebration, and our heart is broken. But in both of these ways, right, we're brought together to learn how to be the family of God together. In the New Testament, it says that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And the Psalms teach us that. And before we, we jump into the text, which I just love, Psalm 73, um, but I want to talk a little bit more about why the Psalms are especially relevant to us uh, as a church right now. So if you've been at CB for any amount of time, you may feel that the only constant has been change. Can you, can you relate to that? Right? Maybe ministries starting and ministries ending. Families coming and families going. Even pastors coming 
and pastors going. And you know, and I'm not just talking about the last three years. Perhaps we could even say it of the last 30 years. And maybe some of these changes to you have been like, oh, they're so good. Finally, we fixed this. Right? And they're good. You feel like, oh, this is positive. Other times, changes can be disheartening and difficult and challenging and confusing even. And sometimes the same change is looked at in two different ways by different people. One person celebrates it, another person grieves it. Right? Particularly in this season. Some of you may have a deep hope and excitement for what God is going to do and what's ahead. And other of you may feel discouraged or confused, and you might be wrestling with whether you still, still feel at home in a church that you have been a part of for so long. I don't know. But that's why we need the Psalms so badly, because they invite us to be honest with ourselves, with God, and with one another. And they invite us to sing and worship God in the midst of whatever we're feeling. And they call us into deeper relationship. And they allow us to lean into those doubts and fears and disappointments and lean into community instead of running away and hiding from them. And this season in our church, it's a time to stop changing things for a change. Okay? I'm sorry, I know, I realize it's another change, <laughs> right? To stop changing things for a change. But I think our temptation is for us to kind of rush ahead, right? And say, what's next? Give us a vision. Give us something to do. Give us some problems to fix, right? We're like the husband who too, too quickly gives the solution to his wife, right? When she's sharing her burden and her feelings. I got, I know, here's the fix, here's the band-aid, when really she just wants us to stop and listen and say, I understand it's difficult. But I think sometimes, especially for us guys, we're afraid of entering into the emotion of that moment, right? <laughs> that's hard, that's sticky, that's, that's negative feelings. We don't want to go there. And so we apply the band-aid. We apply the solution so that we can stay emotionally detached. And so this season and this study in the Psalms is an invitation to feel. It's an invitation to slow down, to stop changing, and to feel, to wait on God and listen to each other. Now, in the, in the context of, of the redemptive history of the Scriptures, a lot of the Psalms came out of the exilic period, right? God's people were in exile in Babylon. And this season of God's people was a season of repentance, of waiting, of drawing near to God, of self-examination, and a season of pressing into that exilic community. Okay, who's left, right? It's, it's like, it's just a small group of us. Who's left? And they're in exile, and you press into one another. And in that place, right, they, they saw their temple destroyed. They saw Jerusalem ransacked. Every part of them wants to go back to Jerusalem and fix it, rebuild it, make it all better again. 
But they can't. They're in Babylon. Because God doesn't want them yet to rebuild the temple. God wants to rebuild them. And then only once, once they're ready, once, and then for them it was 70 years, right? But only once they were ready could they go back into the land, could they rebuild their city, their temple, and their nation. So we'll get there, but we're not there yet. Okay? So that brings us to Psalm 73. Asaph is a priest. He's a worship leader. He's a teacher of God's people. And he's having a crisis of faith. He's wrestling with doubt. Anyone <laughs> can relate? <laughs> That's an experience that is common to us. And this psalm brings us along on his journey of doubt and disappointment with God and with himself. Now, what is, here's something amazing about this. This psalm, Psalm 73, is in the Bible. Tim Mackey from the, the Bible Project says this about this psalm. He says, get this, people's words doubting God have become God's words to doubting people. That's that profound? That this psalm, doubting God, is in the Bible so that us, as we doubt God, can pray these things back to him. So let's, let's join him in that together. Read in Psalm, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll, we'll just kind of hop through this a little bit. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he has this faith statement, right? right? That, that tells him that he should be enjoying God's blessing, and life shouldn't be as hard as it is. Now, this, this faith statement is true, right? But there's ways that it gets twisted. There's a way that these, these ideas get twisted. And, and we'll see that Asaph was twisting this in his heart. One way that we twist this truth is that we put ourselves only in the category of the righteous, right? Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I'm of the pure in heart. We put our, that's, uh, ourselves in that category. And often we read the Psalms, we see these there are the righteous and the wicked, the pure and the impure. We too quickly jump to the conclusion that us people in church are the righteous and the pure. And those people out there are the impure. But what the psalmist is going to learn about himself is that really his heart is no different than those people in the world that he sees around him. And what he'll find out is that God's way of purifying his heart is not as easy as he had thought and not as simple. Now, the other way we twist this truth in verse 1 is, is how we define what the good life is, right? Truly, God is good to Israel. There's a famous uh, prosperity teacher, who I don't necessarily recommend, who wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. Who doesn't want their best life now, Right? But it all depends on how you define the good life. And what we'll see is that Asaph's definition of the good life changes as he has this experience through this psalm. And our definition of the good life might need to change also. So let's see what happens to him. In verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. 
So Asaph is, he's living in this illusion of his own purity and that there's this good life that God owes to him. And then something happens. We don't know what it is, but something shakes his faith. And it's neat because there's no specific example, it helps us to relate to it and put in our the specifics of our own story into it. And so it says he, his feet almost slips. He almost falls. That foundation of his worldview is shaken. What he thought he knew about himself and God is challenged and overturned. And what we see here is that doubt doesn't just exist in an intellectual vacuum, right? It's, it's affected by and comes about because of our experiences in life where life and beliefs collide. Now, he's going to describe this in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on and describes, right, how they're healthy and beautiful and strong and famous, and they're ignoring God and, and speaking against him and pursuing their own pleasure and going their own way. And they seem to be rewarded for their lifestyle of seeking their own glory and and. And so he has this, what seems to be an intellectual problem on the surface, right? We, we can call it the problem of evil. God, why is there no justice in the world? Why, why do nice guys finish last, right? Why is there, there the suffering in this world and the people and the oppressors, they don't seem to suffer, right? God, if you are so good and to the pure in heart, why is this happening? How can this be, Right? This is a powerful intellectual question, right, that people debate and wrestle with, but it becomes a very personal question when we experience suffering, doesn't it? A very personal question. So how does Asaph wrestle with this issue, right? First is where he starts, and we have to start there too. He is brutally honest about his own heart in the midst of his doubts. We don't often want to go there. We like starting by pointing fingers at God and those wicked people, right? Asaph, he starts with his heart, and he's honest about it, right? In verse 3, he says, I was envious of the wicked. You see what he does is he deconstructs his own doubt. He doubts his doubt. He is skeptical about his skepticism, right? Is justice and the care of the poor really his core issue? When he's honest, he realizes it's not, right? The heart of his doubt is that he is jealous and envious of the arrogant. He has a heart and character issue before he has an intellectual issue. He realizes, he's like, I want to go have all the fun. I want all the followers. I want the money. I want the high life, the good life. I want to have fun, more fun on my weekends. Whatever it is, he is envious. He desires it. And he feels like he is not free, that he is constrained by this purity and devotion to God and by this, this identity that he has as a, as a follower of Yahweh, of God. But he's honest, isn't he? Sometimes our arguments against God are really smoke screens to hide the real issue. Right? We don't want to change the way that we're living our lives. And so we put up reasons for why we can't follow Christ, why we no longer want to follow Christ. 
So he's, he's honest about his doubts and he deconstructs them. Now there's this amazing quote by a guy named Aldous Huxley. He's a 20th century atheist, philosopher, novelist. And he says this about why he argues against the existence of God. You throw up the, the quote. He says this, I had motives, this is Aldous Huxley, okay? I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Here he is, finding his arguments, right? The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, he was good friends with, if you know, Bertrand Russell, the atheist who wrote, Why I Am Not a Christian. So he's talking about his friends here. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was in this essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed, he's talking about Christianity, isn't he? The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. Do you hear that? He's doing the same thing Asaf is doing. He's saying, I'm looking out at the world, and you know what? I, I see a desire in my heart to live like the world. And so he constructed reasons why he could and why the claims of Christ had no hold on him. Perhaps some of us are wrestling or hiding in that same way. Now, Asaf comes to a breakthrough, doesn't he? And we're going we're gonna to skip ahead to that. And we see it in verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, right, all of, of this injustice he sees in the world. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So as he tried to process through this problem on his own, right, he says he was weary, he's ready to give up. God, this is so difficult. But then he came into the sanctuary, into the, uh, the, the place of meeting with God, into that, the, uh, the temple, into the community of God's people. He came into the sanctuary and everything changed for him. Now, there's at least three things that happened in the sanctuary that made all the difference for him. And I think, in fact, I know, can make all the difference for us as we wrestle with our doubt. So we're just going to end and look at those three things that made all the difference for him when he entered into the sanctuary. Here's the first thing. He didn't wrestle with his problems alone. Verse 15, you go step one back, verse back. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's saying, God, I have all these doubts and questions and wrestlings, but I can't talk about them in church. It's not safe. 
right? He, he thinks he can't share his thoughts and his feelings because they're just too messy. And people wouldn't know what to do with them. He thinks he has to have it all put together and figured out. But this changes when he enters into the sanctuary, okay? That time in Israel, the place of sanctuary, the, the temple, was a place of sacrifice, but it wasn't just that. In fact, there was hundreds of people every day that would gather, and there would be worship singers and choirs. There would be people studying Torah. There would be people praying. It would be a community of all ages gathering together, worshiping and learning together, okay? And we see that this private doubt and this private lament that Asaf had becomes a public confession, a public prayer. So we know that he processed through it in community. And so that's the first thing. When we are wrestling with doubts and questions and we feel the pool of the world, right? We feel the envy of our old life creeping back in. We need to press into community more than ever, right? And not be afraid that our lives are too messy. All of our lives are messy, right? If you're not involved in the community group, the men or women's ministry, or maybe the the Tuesday uh, morning Bible study, if you're not involved in some real deliberate relationships where on a regular basis another believer asks you how are you doing and they actually expect an honest answer, right? If if you don't have that kind of relationship in in your life beyond your spouse, your spouse is awesome and you should expect and give honest answers to your spouse, but if you don't have that beyond your spouse into the wider community of God, Press into community. We need that. We need that so much, especially in this season. That's the first thing he did. He entered the sanctuary. He entered into the community of God's people. Okay? Here's the second way that entering the sanctuary was a breakthrough for him. It says, right, in, um, in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He saw through the facade of the pleasures of the world around him. Before he was looking at the world, now he began to look through the world. Verse 20 describes this experience. He says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms, right? Or illusions or dreams. It's this picture that the wicked, right? Their life is a dream. You ever have one of those dreams where something totally awesome is happening? You're like, this is amazing. I finally got this thing or I get to do this thing. And then you wake up and you think, do I still have it? Did I do this great thing? Nope. You're like, can I go back to sleep? Maybe. But you're not going back to that dream, right? I always, I I try. On weekends, I try. I don't get back there. Right? That's what it's like in this, this world. The pleasures you pursue, the accolades, the, the pride, the identity that you build up. There will be a day of judgment, judgment. There will be justice where we will stand before our maker and we'll wake up like from a dream. And, and it'll be us and our creator. Some of us need to be woken up this morning. Right? This idea of justice. He discerned their end. He deserved the justice of God, where it is all heading. 
And this idea of God's justice, of God's wrath, of judgment, is not just an Old Testament idea like, okay, God was angry back then and now he's, he's not, right? We see, especially in the New Testament, the words of Jesus speaking so clearly of God's judgment, especially against the religious and those that just have a form of godliness who go through the motions but don't have a heart transformed in love with God. Listen to these words from Jesus in Luke 12. I think we have a, have a slide for it. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. What is leaven? You just need a little bit of it in the dough, and it spreads. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Those are heavy words. Those are the words of Jesus. Asaf enters the sanctuary and he sees God's justice. He sees where it is heading. And his heart was being drawn into the world, envying the arrogant and the wicked. And he almost goes there. And then he wakes up. If you need that this morning, I pray that God would wake you up. Right. Now, I want to step back because... If, if you are already coming from a, a foundation of a biblical worldview, you hear that and you receive those words and you're like, okay, I need to hear that. But if you are, you are coming from maybe more of a secular worldview and you hear that the answer that Psalm 73 gives to the problem of evil is God's wrath and judgment. Right? God will make it all, all just in the end. But if you're coming from a secular worldview, you say, that doesn't solve the problem of God's uh, of injustice and the problem of evil. In fact, that's the problem of God's wrath and judgment, that's as much of a problem for Christianity as the problem of evil. Right? From a secular worldview, you say, eh, you know what, that's, this idea of an angry God, of a judging God, that's that's, that's medieval, right? That's primitive. So I don't know. Maybe some of us are there. But I, I'm sure all of us have neighbors or coworkers that are there, right? So does Psalm 73 speak to that? Look at, so in verse 2, we see this. We see, he says, right? As for me, my feet had almost slipped. And then look at verse 18. It's poetry, right? When we read poetry, we want to follow the repetition of ideas and words. Look at verse 18. Now speaking about the arrogant and, the, and these people denying God. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Asaf is comparing his foothold to theirs. And he sees that the foothold of the world is actually more slippery than his. Right? And it's absolutely essential that we learn as Christians how to do this, how to compare 
and think through the, the leap of faith that we make and compare it to the leap of faith that the secular, progressive, kind of worldly view needs to make. The world wants to say to us, there is faith and belief on this side, and then there's reason over here. There's belief and there's unbelief. But here's, the, here's what's actually going on. Here's what we see this here uh, from verse, in verse 2 and verse um, 7. Uh, where, where is it? Where he compares, right? In verse 18. You see that it's actually belief and belief, right? There's no objective viewpoint where you can step back and say, I am entirely objective and I can judge someone else's viewpoint, We're all making a certain leap of faith. And when it comes to the problem of evil, right, there's actually, this can actually be more of a problem for atheism than for Christianity. Here's what I mean, and this is uh, this uh, this key idea of how this, God's justice solves the problem of evil. Get this. God's justice is the only reasonable explanation and only emotionally satisfying answer for the human need for justice. Okay, every one of us has a human need for justice, right? You see, if we're asking, how can God allow so much injustice in the world? We're saying that there should be justice, right? But where do we get that idea? Not from nature, Right? Nature is not just. In nature, the strong devour the weak. And that's just normal. That's to be expected. Right? So where does this idea of justice come from that we, that we all share? Now, okay, I know this is going to get a little philosophical. I'm going to, I'm going to quote a, a philosopher. But I want, I want us to be able to learn to think like this. Okay? This is Alvin Plantiga talking about this question. He says, The most appalling kinds of human evil and wickedness are a problem for anyone who believes in God, right? That's that that problem of evil that Asaf is wrestling with. But they are at least as big, if not a bigger problem for people who don't believe in God. These are the only two alternatives. Can there be such a thing as evil and wickedness if God does not exist and we are only here by random chance? I don't see how. An atheistic view of the world has no logical place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural, and you have no foundation for saying it's wrong or evil. Therefore, if you think that there really is such a thing as good and, and evil, that is simply not an illusion that these things are, there really is such a thing as good and evil, then you have a very powerful reason to believe in God. Okay, there's a lot there. Do you see what he's saying, though? In order to doubt God for allowing evil in the world, you have to first believe in a world where there is such a thing as evil. And that can only be true in a world where God exists. So that's that problem of evil. Now, how does this relate to our sense of justice? How does this relate to the, the issue that God, that God says that he will bring judgment? Right? We all have this sense of justice, and it comes from our Creator. Now, what do you do when, when someone wrongs you, when someone hurts you or hurts someone you love? 
right? You have a choice to make, don't you? The choice is, right, you can seek justice and make them pay for what they've done, or you can forgive them, right? But to forgive is always difficult. It doesn't, it doesn't come naturally, right? It always costs us something. We have, to, we have to do something with those negative emotions that we feel. We have to do something with that sense of justice. In a way, we have to bear the suffering ourselves and not take it out on the person that's wronged us. But where do you find those resources to forgive? How, how, how do you forgive? The world tells us, right, our secular culture tells us we should be tolerant of everyone, right? So how do you tolerate the person that broke into your house or into your car or, or the spouse that ran away with, with another lover? How, how do you tolerate the person that deeply wrongs you? Our secular world gives us no resources to do that, right? It just gives us platitudes and sound bites, but it doesn't give us the, the depth of emotional resources to do that. Where does it come from? Where does the resource to love, not just your neighbors, but your enemies? Okay, one last long, heady quote, okay? I promise. Miroslav Volf talks about this. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. If, if God was not just, we should not worship him. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves, by us lashing out against people, the only way to prohibit that recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. <laughs> but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from belief in God's refusal to judge. Right? You have to live in a happy little sheltered world and postulate, oh yeah, God is not just. He just is, either doesn't exist or he's loving and welcoming for everyone. And oh yeah, we can just forgive because that's so easy. Right? You can think that in a safe little bubble. Right? But Miroslav Volf, he ends with, he says, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die, this, this idea, right? with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. <laughs> so I'll repeat the idea again. What this psalm, Psalm 73, and the, the, the story of the Bible tells us is that God's justice is the only reasonable explanation and the only emotionally satisfying answer for the human need for justice. It's the only way to explain it intellectually and the only way when we've been wronged and hurt or those that we love have been wronged and hurt, the only emotionally satisfying way to say, okay, God, I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to seek my rights and what is my due because I know that you will and we can forgive, and we can release. So in the sanctuary, Asaf experiences community, right? And he comes with the grips, comes with grips to the reality 
of God's justice. Those are two of the things that he sees that are transformative for him. But there's one last thing that happens, and this is the most significant, and this is what we end on. God met Asaph in the midst of his struggle and doubt, and God promises to do the same for us when we call on him, when we come to him. You see, we're not the first ones. He wasn't the first ones to experience grief over injustice in the world. We are not the first ones to cry out to God for desperation, right? We're not the first ones to experience these things and and struggle. Before us, Jesus experienced all these things on the cross. Get this. In the face of horrific evil against him, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Because of his forgiveness of us, who were his enemies, right? Our hearts can now be free from envy, free from bitterness, and we too can forgive those who have hurt us. On the cross, he was rejected by God and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we can say with the last words of this psalm, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. As Christians, we can pray to Jesus, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Because we know the truth, right? That that Paul the Apostle says, For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Whom have I in heaven but you? Right? Jesus, to die is gain because I gain you. I can lay my life down in service to you. And to live is Christ. There is nothing that I desire in this world but you. We can say that. And on the cross, the flesh and the heart of Jesus failed and was broken. As he cried out, it is finished. So that we can say with confidence, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is good to be near God. The nearness of God is our good. And sometimes we get caught up in the the good life that we see in this world. And we think we need to pursue a name for ourselves and wealth and comfort and pleasure and pride. But God, would you wake us up from that? Would uh, Would you let us see the reality of your justice, the reality of your love and goodness and what you accomplished on the cross for us, Jesus? And to see that, that truly the nearness of God is our good. And for those wrestling with doubt this morning, those wrestling with fear and questions, I pray that they would be led into community, that be led into uh, listening and learning with your people and be able to express those prayers and doubts to you and that you would draw near to them. 
and that we would say that the Lord God is our refuge and that then we would go forth from this place and tell of all your works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.